You're listening to Lead to Soar, bringing women the best career advice and mentorship from around the world. Lead to Soar is a production of A Career That Soars. Learn more at leadtosoar.com. Welcome to the Lead to Soar podcast. I'm Mel Butcher and so glad you joined us today. For returning listeners, thank you so much for coming back. We've got a long interview for you today. And for new listeners, welcome. Here at Lead to Soar, we're all about supporting women in their highest career ambitions. So we are here to support you in advancing your career and climbing that ladder no matter where you are. We have a wonderful guest joining us for this episode. We have with us today Joe Thomas, the Chief Executive Officer of the Australian Institute of Business. Joe is all about flawless execution, authentic leadership, and innovation. She's experienced with both online and offline customer offerings and leading teams. Joe is extremely passionate about human experience and enjoys making both the workplace and customer interactions life enhancing experiences. In her words, success lies where people, process, and data intersect. Joe Thomas joins us today to talk about her career that soars with Michelle Redburn. Uh, welcome to Korea Q&A for August. And before we start, I'd like to pay my respects to the traditional custodians uh, of the land wherever we're on, uh, wherever we meet from today. And for me, that's the, the people, the Boonwurrung people. Uh, and I'm on the surf coast of Australia. And I pay my respects to their elders past and present. And I particularly call out to Aboriginal women who have been the the holders of dreams and hopes and memories. They've been teachers and guides and they've helped their communities flourish for more than 65,000 years. If you are of Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander descent, you are very welcome and we thank you. Okay, oh, Thomas, very, very nice to have you here. Welcome. Thank you. Um, and thank you very much for, for having me. So I'm in Adelaide, sunny Adelaide for the first time in a long time today. And so I work on the lands of the Ghana people who are the um, originally came from the Northern Territory all the way down to Chile, uh, Adelaide. But I live on the lands of the Paramount people who are in the Adelaide Hills. And so acknowledge their elders past and present, um, which is something that's very active in Adelaide that I missed a lot in, in Melbourne where I lived for a long time. But I'm originally a New Zealander where we have a really never perfect, but beautifully integrated and culturally diverse society. And so mm, nice to have yes. a little bit of that and pretty white Adelaide, but starting to get much better. Yeah, kia ora to, to any New Zealanders and, and respects to Maori people. Yeah, re um, reconciliation is far more advanced in New Zealand. Well, you and I have always talked about, Joe, that New Zealand is above its weight in, in a whole bunch of different things, including for women. But let's... let's um, Let's stay on track because you and I can go off on lots of tangents. <laughs> so let's get started. So career Q&A. Now we're going to map, walk through your career and welcome to, to everyone who's on the call live. And I invite you to chime on in whenever you've got a question or a comment for Joe, because this is a live session as well as will be recorded for future posterity. For those of you who haven't read the, the intro, Joe and I have known each other for, for a long time met when we were both hanging about in, in outsourced contact centres in 2005 and uh, have gone on to do a whole bunch of different things separately and together. So including Joe being the uh, the absolute MC with the mostess uh, at uh, my wedding three odd years ago to my lovely Rhonda. So welcome Joe. When you meet people for the first time and they say, hello, who are you and what do you do? What do you say? How do you describe yourself and what you do? Well, I've discovered that I don't have enough of a enough of a script. So I run induction. I meet all of our newbies at 9.30 on their first day. And I've realized that I'd give a different introduction every single time. And I think that's because life 
the priorities in life and the things that come to the fore have a tendency to ebb and flow. And so there have been times when I would describe myself as, you know, the first thing I would say is that I was proudly out and gay. There are other times that I would describe myself as the CEO of the Australian Institute of Business, that I would describe myself as a partner or a lover of horses or, you know, passionate about this or mad about these things. And I think that, so from a career perspective, I'm the CEO of the Australian Institute of Business. I'm an avid horse rider. I have an incredible partner who enables me to have the life that I want, which turns out is a really handy thing to have. And how old am I? 43, childless, willingly. One of the best parts of being over 40 is people stop asking me when I'm going to have a child or thinking that it's some deficiency that I never wanted them. So that's the best part of, best part of getting older. But I'm, I'm all of those things. And perhaps one of the best things over my career is that I've got comfortable with being all of those things and accepting that they, they change and move in terms of their prominence and volume that they consume, both in terms of loudness, I'm pretty loud, but in terms of the energy and, and, and presence that they, that they take in my life. I like the fact that you've, you've said that for most of us, for many of us, I should say, we have over the courses um, of our lives and our careers compartmentalised certain aspects of ourselves. But when you're able to kind of quite openly, joyfully, and really authentically, even though I hate the word authentic, bring it together um, and talk about yourself, it's it's very, very liberating. So, yes, I, I, I do like that. But, yeah, I, I, let's let's have a bit of a, a bio. Let's walk bio. through your, your CV. Look, I, I, would, I would love to say that my career was, was carefully thought out and well executed. It was a, a well thought out plan and a carefully ex- careful execution. And the reality is that in a lot of ways, it's been a series of, of happy accidents, a series of choices that were terrifying at the time and a whole lot of hard, hard work. So I, as I said at the beginning, I grew up in New Zealand, moved here by accident, in fact, it will be my 20-year anniversary in two days. So 10 days after September 11, I came to Australia on my way to Europe, which is what most Kiwis do. We finish uni, we save up some money, and then we go and we spend a couple of years working in London and travelling around Europe. I came to Melbourne because the planes had crashed into the Twin Towers and it felt like travelling internationally at that time who knew what could happen? So I figured I'd hang in Melbourne for three months and see how it all panned out. And 20 years later, uh, I'm not in Melbourne anymore, um, no. but I'm still I'm still in Australia. And so I got a job in a call centre. And I reckon it wasn't the very first role. I was a temp. And I remember looking at the team leader, who was a girl called Emma. And I thought, oh, God, if she could be a team leader, I'll be a CEO in 10 years. <laughs> it took 20 so my time frame was a bit patchy, but the goal, that was probably the first time that I thought that business, um, so I studied communications at uni, I wanted to be a radio announcer, who lets 16 year olds make life choices, I mean it's a terrible idea, and so I stayed there for six and a half years, I worked my way up, and I think call contact centres, and particularly outsourcing, they're a really tough job margins are slim and so as you move into leadership in those businesses you're constantly having to trade off your client or the service that you deliver to the customers or your people or the margins of the business and so I think growing up as a leader in that environment meant that I started to understand the balance between people and numbers really well and that when you can make them all point in the same direction that's brilliant and that's where success comes from but it's also really hard to do and it was a really technology rich environment so you know cool telephony systems and awesome crms and and highly sophisticated technology and so i think i really started to understand that that was where my passion in business lay was that intersection of data and people and and technology and how you can bring three things together and the sum ends up being well the whole ends up being greater than the sum of the parts but it also pays like crap working in a contact centre, <laughs> um, particularly an outsourced one. And there was, at the time, it felt like it wasn't a cool job like being a lawyer was or being an engineer was. And so I decided that I would go and do an MBA and I would get out of contact. And so I went to Monash and I started an MBA and I was very close to finishing it. 
And I remember sitting in my office on William Street, and Michelle will know the office. Late <laughs> I at remember night, it. <laughs> late at night, looking down King Street in, in Melbourne at the lights. And we just got the monthly financials in the eye. There was a hundred grand that I couldn't explain. And I just felt sick. And I was supposed to be at my friend's 40th birthday party. Actually, it was probably 30th birthday party. And I thought, what am I doing? This is insane. Um, and I found, so a few weeks later, somebody sent me an ad for iSelect. So I don't know if everyone knows iSelect, the, the health insurance people. Um, and it was paying exactly the same as I was earning at this outsourcer, except it was managing 26 people instead of 350. And I thought, that's essentially a part-time job. Mm -hmm. What I'll do is I'll go there. So I was managing their inbound call centre. And at the time, I think I was managing seven outbound contact centres for this outsourcer. I thought, I'll go there. It pays the same. It's 26 people who are part-time. I'll knock off the MBA. And then I'll finally get out of contact centres for good. This is what I mean by happy accident. So I was at Isolate for six and a half years. And it was a fundamental career maker for me. I started as their outbound call centre manager. I left as their ops director, which was the same as their chief operating officer. I was probably employee number 100. And by the time I left, I had 500 reporting through to me. It was, it was amazing. It was one of the most incredible jobs that I have ever had, but it was also all-encompassing. So my entire life was there. I bought a house close to our office. The people that I hung out with were the people that I worked with. I had no personal life. Our relationship ended not long after I started there. So for that six and a half years, I was single for probably five and a half years of it, but was completely fine because it fulfilled me personally and professionally. In hindsight, I'm not sure that's a great thing, but at the time it felt fabulous. And we went through a few CEOs and we listed and eventually the joy came out of it. And so when a new CEO came on board, him and I had a discussion and we decided that it was time for me to hand the baton over to somebody else. We'd gone from innovation and entrepreneurship into being a listed company that needed systems and processes. And I'm not amazing at systems. <laughs> I intellectually understand the need for them, but they're not really my wheelhouse. I love ideation and I love starting. I'm not a great finisher. So I rely on other people to do that. So I felt when I left there, couldn't imagine what a life without Isolect would be like because it was so much a part of my life. And a very dear friend of mine who'd also worked for me had left about two weeks earlier. And I remember saying three days before my last day, I just, what am I going to do? Um, and he said, I just wish I could accelerate you 10 days into the future. Um, and so I ended up six months on gardening leave. So that was the deal that we'd negotiated. So it was absolute, because they were terrified that I would go and work for a competitor. A competitor market had just started to, to rise to prominence. So I spent six months on gardening leave, which was so much fun. I, I thought that there would be this huge gap in my life. And then I realized that life will expand to fill the time available. And so suddenly I'd go out for breakfast with like fun people who I just saw on LinkedIn and had never met and sent them a message and were like, you're cool. Can I learn stuff from you? I saw friends. I rode my horse. I lost 10 kilos. It turned out my mum had retired at about the same time. And we used to laugh that we were the two busiest unemployed people we'd ever met. <laughs> I'd still get up at 6.30 every morning, even though I had no job. And that taught me a really valuable lesson that it's really easy for jobs to take over your whole life, which also means it can be hard to make decisions not to do them because you do wonder what would happen next. And because I was forced with gardening leave into doing nothing next, it made me realize that life absolutely goes on. The business carries on and you carry on. And they, those things that seem so giant at the time actually don't have a huge impact later on and later on in your life. They fade really quickly. So I spent six months consulting after my gardening leave and then off I went to compare the market uh, the day after my restraint period ended. So I had a 365-day <laughs> restraint period and on day 362, I started driving to Queensland and on day 366, I rocked up at compare the market for what was the most horrific 11 months of my life. It was one of the most disgusting, misogynistic places <laughs> that I have ever worked. 
I had never really thought that the glass ceiling was a thing. I had had that wonderful personal exceptionalism vibe where, well, maybe it exists for other people, but I've never encountered it. So maybe they're just not good enough. And after 11 months, got fired, as did my CEO, who was our, our ex-Isolect CEO. It's one of the only places that I have worked where I would be asked a question by one of our board members and I would start to answer and he would literally go and look out the window when I was halfway through speaking. I'd just be like, do I, do I keep talking? <laughs> so I was pretty bruised after that and probably more bruised than I realized at the time. And so I went into small business with someone that I worked with before. And probably I was licking my wounds and taking a break from corporate life. So Iselect had been amazing and fun, but it was exhausting. And then compare the market was horrible and exhausting. And then I came here to AIB. And I came here mainly because I could buy a farm, 35 minutes commute and still have a good job. And the opportunity to be able to have my horses and have a career is something that I'd actually given up on because it's fundamentally impossible in, in Brisbane and Sydney and Melbourne. But it turns out Adelaide, you can do both. And it's been an incredible journey here. So I was COO for two and a half years, looking after um, all of the non-academic parts of, of, so AIB is Australian Institute of Business. So we're an online MBA provider, largest in Australia, pretty big in Canada as well. Half owned by private equity and half by a founding family, which is a pretty interesting shareholder structure to deal with. But they've been very supportive of me and only stepped into this role 11 weeks ago. So our previous CEO was exited not for any nefarious reasons, one of the most extraordinary leaders that I have worked for, um, but not a growth CEO. And when you're owned by private equity, not growing is unacceptable. And so that's how I find myself here. Sensational. It's been nice walking back through uh, your CV, particularly the parts where, well, I I was there and, and we had lots of chats and, and I certainly do I admire you for, for calling out the, the very, very toxic work environment that you had at, at the mob in Brisbane because, yeah, it was awful. And it, it's very, very, uh, I think it's it's great for, particularly for women, to be able to talk um, in, in our environment, in a career that soars about this is what it was like. You know, you, you're pretty real there, Joe, because you're going, oh, I didn't really think this glass ceiling thing existed, but yeah, I found out that it did. And I did find out that toxic workplaces exist and, yeah. and this, that, and the other. So I think that's those kind of things from a, a woman of, of your seniority and your experience, I, I think are really useful because I certainly look back and I don't know if you do and think, I wish sometimes there'd been more realness that uh, people, particularly senior women, would have told me, you can probably expect this and this is how to either inoculate yourself against it quick or you know whatever so which is a nice segue into talking about career advice you know we know that women get given a lot of advice or ask questions as you said when you're having a baby or when you're having another baby or oh why are you going to come back to work blah 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 anyway putting that to one side when you think about your career and the advice that you have no doubt received if, it's, if you can, can you think about the best career advice you received, why it was the best um, and what you did about it? I'm going to be contrary because you know me. I think I seek advice a lot and I've always been really lucky to have a network of people and, you know, Michelle and her wife, Rhonda, sometimes even Rhonda kicks ass, <laughs> kicks your ass when it comes to giving career advice. I drag them out does. to dinner when deciding what I was going to do next at one point in my life. And so I've received lots of good advice from lots of really smart people. And so it's hard to pick out one thing. But I, I think perhaps the most impactful piece of feedback that I have ever received was actually in that really difficult compare the market job. I had spoken to my CEO and I said look I, I feel like there are members of the board who oh, they clearly don't value what I have to say and they clearly don't respect me and, and I need to build these relationships but I, I don't know what I'm doing wrong I, I just I don't know what I'm doing wrong I need you to tell me what else I need to do because this, mm -hmm. this is not going to work if 
we have no relationship. I need you to go and talk to them and I need you to bring it back. And he, and he came back a few weeks later. We say, oh, no, no, I don't think that they hate you. And I'm like, it feels that way. And that's okay, but I still need to know how to make the relationship work. And he came back and he said, look, I've, I've got some feedback. And I said, yep. And he said, so this particular person has said, you move on when something goes wrong, you move on really quickly to try and just move on to the solution. And I went, yep. Oh, that's bad feedback. And he goes, yep. And I went, I, I, should I cr like cry if I make a mistake? Like what, what would be, I don't, I don't. Ugh. And the reason it was one of the most impactful pieces of feedback ever was that it made me go, that is a core part of who I am. And it's actually a piece of me that I really, really value because I think it's what makes me good. And if that is the one bit of feedback that's gonna come through, that that is where I'm culturally not aligned, I can't compromise those values. I can't compromise that sense of self-identity. Mm. It gave me such clarity that it wasn't the place for me. And so I did get fired, which was great because I had to wait about seven weeks to resign and they fired me before I actually could resign. So <laughs> that turned out to be really useful. But it was impactful because for the first time ever, I think when you tend to be liked, you get used to being liked. And so it becomes important to be liked, bizarrely. If it comes easily, it becomes more important. And then when clearly you're not, actually, I was then okay with it. And even though the cost of not fitting in meant that I lost the job. I didn't like the job. So it wasn't a huge cost. The cost of my ego was pretty big because I never thought I'd be the sort of person who got fired. I thought only like bad people got fired. People who were useless got fired. But it, it made me over the years, it's become this flashpoint of I'm me and I've got good bits and I've got bad bits. And I can actually look at them with no judgment. I know mm. where my strengths are and I know where my weaknesses are. And I can articulate both of them without arrogance or fear, just as a statement of fact, just the way you describe a drink bottle. It's got a lid, it screws off, this one pops up, it's got cordial in it because I hate water, it's gray. They just are. And I try and work on my weaknesses, but I don't bash myself up. And I try and play to my strengths, but I'm not cocky about it. And I think that was the change in receiving that that feedback was just that clarity about understand yourself but without mm. judgment and I remember the CEO said oh did you ask for feedback and I said no and he said why not and I said because I'm not interested in what that person thinks of me you're listening to lead to soar a production of a career that soars a Career That Soars, or ACTS, is an organization, a networking platform, and a place for career women to learn and connect. Our founder, Susan Colantuno, envisioned a group that would embrace women from all backgrounds and support one another towards achieving their highest career ambitions. Learn more about what you can get from ACTS by visiting leadtosoar.com and clicking the ACTS link. interesting because I think um, I, I, I do refer to Brene Brown's work a fair bit but in the context of leadership so not all feedback is a gift and not all feedback needs to be paid attention to but I think what you've said there is saying well you know there there are people the right others so when we talk about strategic networks there are the right others they are the people that you're going to pay attention to yeah. whether they're giving you feedback direction whatever it may be if they are not one of the right others, or as my darling wife Rhonda would say, five-year rule, this person is not going to matter in five years in my life. That is not a gift and it's not feedback I intend to take notice of. And that's okay. Yeah. How did you get to that point though, Joe? I guess in terms of people, circumstances, experiences that 
have allowed you to arrive at a point where you're okay and you have that that self-assurance and and self-belief i think i honestly think that the passage of time is a key part of it and i would i would love to say that you know i've actively worked on it and i probably have as i've got as i've got older as well but i think i think that the more you the more time passes but also the more you get comfortable at reflecting on these things and poking and prodding how they make you feel do i feel rotten about that because it's true do i feel rotten about that because it hurts my ego do i feel rotten about that because actually that person i care about them and i care what they think of me and maybe it is and maybe it isn't true but actually i have the emotion about feeling rotten because i don't want that person to think that of me mm. um, or do i accept it because i like it versus do i accept it because it's true because it's always easy to accept positive things um, mm. and so i try to be reflective and not look i'm not a journaling kind of person i'm not a affirmations in the mirror kind of person i'm not an inspirational memes kind of person but i i try to i try to be dispassionate about how i reflect on things and i try to cut myself slack and i think the more you do that the more practiced you get with it and it, that takes time so i think there's a there's a there's a mutually reinforcing that as you get older you start to go well you know some people are great and some people crap and some people like me and some people don't and actually there's a whole lot of stuff in that that i can't control but there's also a whole lot of stuff in there that is interesting and so i think being curious and reflective about it and being able to go yeah look i feel ill about that but it's still something that i'm going to have to do or that really hurts and i'm probably never going to change that so i'm just going to have to think about how will i compensate for it and what will i do about it or actually you know what i can be different when it comes to that that's not a nature thing that's not a values thing that's a behavior Mm. and i can be conscious of that behavior and i can change that behavior i'm surrounded by a lot of quite blunt people and i seem to have a penchant for the devil's advocates who often give me really tough feedback <laughs> but I, when i know it comes from a place of love and respect that makes it heaps easier as yeah. well i said in uh, the introduction to the blurb for, for this session that I've always known you as someone with extraordinary IQ. So you're a very clever person. You've got very, very good business strategic and financial acumen, which is what all of the, the, the stuff that Susan, myself, Mel and Amal do. And I particularly do in, in the work I do with women. But with that, you have very good EQ. And I think EQ is an EQ... I get a little frustrated, a little bit bent out of shape as I do about many things. But when people say, oh, yeah, I'm very self-aware, so I've got good EQ. Well, it's actually it's so much more than that. And what you've demonstrated there is that you, you know what makes you tick. You know how to self-manage. Um, you know the impact you have on others. But essentially, and I think in the context of the business women that tune in to our platform, it's how do I navigate the organisation, those organisational dynamics, politics, you know, there, there are always politics. And having that IQ is one thing, but that EQ piece really allows you to navigate organisational dynamics extraordinarily well, even to the point where in, in the instance you were, you were talking about, where you say, okay, so this is actually not the organisation for me because there's a misalignment in, in values. The strategy thing is, is interesting because I... I wouldn't rate strategic thinking as a, a particularly strong suit of mine. In fact, really? Yeah, and and I've actually I've just I've upgraded my personal grade on strategy recently, and and I'll okay. and I'll tell you why because I actually think it might be an example of what you've just said. But thanks, they're very nice compliments. I always, despite the fact I say I'm a good starter and not a good sort of finisher. I've always felt that an average strategy with really good execution and a good culture underpinning it and smart data and motivated oh. people will outperform really great strategy with like average execution. And, and strategy, you know, 
you know, all these PowerPoint decks. I have discovered you spend a lot of time doing PowerPoint as a CEO. So just as a heads up, you will spend far more time at your computer than you think. I tend to spend very little time at my computer and now I'm CEO, I spend more time at my computer. That took me by surprise. Anyway, it always felt a bit woo-woo, way in the future. How would you even know if you achieve it? You know, let's just, let's just get shit done. And suddenly I become CEO and I have these two different groups of shareholders and they're all totally aligned on what they want the future to look like. But what for two and a half years we have been unable to do, and this is not just the, the previous CEO, I was part of that executive group, is clearly articulate a path to get there. Which it turns out that strategy, it's not just execution. I thought strategy was just the future stuff. Turns out strategy is actually, are you on the scooter? Are you on the hovercraft? Are you walking? Are you getting up on the pony? It turns out that those decisions about how you're going to get there are actually, that turns out that strategy. And so I looked at where I felt I could find an intersection between those different perspectives on how we were going to achieve that long-term goal. And I spent a huge amount of time engaging with those shareholder groups because they felt, they felt like there wasn't not that there wasn't a middle ground, but that it would always, it would compromise everyone too much if we just charted a middle ground. And we've ended up, I've ended up getting agreement from that board on an approach to developing the strategy that takes those disparate views in and has been able to synthesize them in something that is actually possible for us as an organization to execute. It's about mm. leveraging our capabilities. It's about testing one thing, but having a backup plan so that if the, the more conservative option doesn't give us the growth we want, we've already done the thinking about how do we leverage those same capabilities to grow into a different market or into a different geography. And so suddenly I have agreement on how we can form the strategy. And so I always felt that I was a bit crap at strategy, but actually being able to understand the levers within the business and understand the drivers and the perspectives of the shareholders and then the, the data that we have to underpin it has ended up enabling me to develop that strategy. We haven't finished yet, but we have a really clear path and I now feel really clear on what our priorities are. And so I've upgraded myself from a D on strategy to maybe like a, a B at this point. <laughs> And isn't it fascinating when, um, you know, when you you see yourself reflected back in someone else? And, you know, for, for me, you have, you have always been that person who is, lives in the future, talks about the future. Look, you know, and I always think, I always think about Porter's Five Forces and, you know, you, you, you are that. So it's, it's, it's interesting that you have that own, your own view was, no, I wasn't actually particularly good at that. And I think, well, that's, that, that is quite an interesting view. Irrespective of how you have felt about your strategic acumen, you are numerically very, very sound. You have very good financial literacy. Um, in fact, you're beyond literate. So you have very strong financial acumen. You are, uh, I, I, you know, you are the person who can do numbers in your head, and I, and I say this from experience, ladies, because Joe and I have had the great pleasure and pain of of looking at complex pricing models, budgets, monthly P and Ls, trying to find a hundred thousand dollars when it's missing, you know, all those kind of things. We've done that work together, so I have seen Joe in action here, and you are able to compute stuff that takes me a, a lot longer. And I've always been very transparent. I'm okay with numbers. In fact, I'm actually very good with numbers, but I need to work and I need time. You're, you're good. Did that come to you naturally or have you worked on it, developed it? And then how have you kept developing your financial literacy? So when I, and I think I said, so I did radio and I remember, so I did this communications degree and there was this running joke with all of those students that this was the degree you did when you hated maths. And so I was okay at maths at, at, at school. It's not circle geometry, but I was okay at maths at school. And I think I still don't, I'm still not very good with a balance sheet, I have to admit, but give me a P&L or give me cash flow mm. um, or give me a sales funnel where things hang together and doing something here, move something here 
I think I both intuitively get that, but I've also learned that the more you practice it, and I don't know if you can see my whiteboard behind me. I was looking at it with great admiration because I do love a big whiteboard. Um, It's a whole wall. It's the best thing about this office. (laughs) Is that when there's meaning in the numbers rather than just a set of them. So one of my skills is I am good at synthesizing stuff. So I can take five or six random things and I can figure out how they impact one another. And so that's the same with numbers. If I know that 10% uplift here will give me 2% uplift over here, and these three behaviors will move that here, I can do that. I can do those calculations more or less in my head. I'm good at rounding. <laughs> I have to round when I do it in my head. Um, and I do think it is something that the more you do it, the better you get at it. And I think that Excel has actually reduced a lot of people's numerical literacy. So I use whiteboards a lot to calculate things. I will use a calculator a lot to calculate things. I will remember at school, you had to show your work. Yes. I think the problem with Excel is, particularly if people are giving you reports and it says 127, where did the 20 come from? Where did the seven come from? Yeah. So when there's no, then there's no formula, I get frustrated. So I'm like, but, but why? Like, where, where, mm. why? Where, why is it seven out of 20? I want to understand yeah. what that means. And, and certainly so, I, I remember doing doing corporate finance in my my MBA uh, and having to go back to like we almost had to have a friggin' abacus, but um not quite, but you know, show your work is I'm going, oh my God. Yeah. So yeah, um and it, it is it builds the muscle. I mean, it's it like does. going to the it gym, does. right? Yep. So, you know, super old school. Um meetings with my phone and be like, times 20%. <laughs> And people like you aggressively tapping your calculator. I, I do this in meetings all the time. And so I do, I do, I try not to give tactical advice to people, but actually that is one that, the, that I would give because the legitimacy that you get, and particularly because, you know, there can still be those underlying biases that women are good at the people stuff and men are good at the numbers. Mm-hmm. If you can outcalculate everybody else in that room quickly and go, yeah, okay, well, let's say I spend $1,000 and I get 1,000 leads. That means my CPL is a dollar. But if I convert that at 10%, then that's $100 per opportunity. Whereas if the other one, I'm paying $5 and that's 200 leads, convert that at 50, then that's 100. Right, so actually they're equal, even though the CPLs are. You can do that off the top of your head quicker than anybody else in the room. You do get an enormous amount of, of legitimacy. And it also means you can call bullshit. So when someone else is sitting there being like, oh, well, you know, the, 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 yeah, I mean, I'm just, I'm not sure why that cash flow is doing the this, or, you know, if we increase uh, this by 5%, then yield will go up by 27. And you're like, Mm. You are you are reminding me. I'm laughing here because I, I had this great colleague uh, when I worked for Circo and uh, Phil, and he was our pricing guru. And look, Phil used to do degrees for fun and, you know, mathematician, whatever. Um, he was the true uh, you know, the Russell Crowe, beautiful mind. He used to write on the windows yeah. and everything. Anyway, we were sitting down one day and he and I were both early starters and we were going through something. I said, oh, you know, it's going to get about a 5% EBIT. And he said, Michelle, he said 5%, and excuse my language, everyone, he goes, but 5% of call is still call. And I said, right. And he said, talk about the money. He said, 5% of $10 is not a lot of money. He said, so I want you to go back in because I was going into a presentation that funny enough that the business development people were giving about why we should go for this contract. And I'm going, I don't want to do this because it's rubbish. He's going, yeah, it is. He said, forget the percentages, talk about the money. And it was such great advice. And of course, to your point, I did call BSP. went, oh, she appears to know what she's talking about. All right. Excellent. Wrong, wrong, wrong deal for all the wrong reasons. But when you start saying, actually, you know that we're only going to be booking about $55,000 a year profit, they were, oh, is that all? Yeah. Okay. Let's walk away. Yeah. So great advice. And so understanding your key levers in the in the business and how, how you can value them quickly is really great particularly when you have to work out ROIs on things and you have to prioritize because we all live in a world where you've got limited resources, you've got limited time, you've got limited people, you've got limited money, you've got limited development capability in your IT team, there's limited hours in the day, everything has a limit. And so everything mm. is a choice. 
And you shouldn't discount gut. And by the way, numbers without feel and context, I could, you could give me any set of numbers and tell me what story you want to tell. And I could probably make the numbers tell the story. Equally, you could give me any set of numbers and give me no context and I would have no idea what they were telling me. And so context and numbers together are really important. But they give you, they give you a huge amount of legitimacy and they make decision-making faster. Yeah, and, and, and to, to call out, I want to call out a point there, which is around the story that the numbers tell, because we so often talk, I talk about this all the time, particularly when we start talking about the four key business outcomes, cash, growth, profit, customer. And I say, you know, there's, those things don't change. They're called different things in different businesses. But the bottom line is don't go and do an, a degree in accountancy, but understand the story that numbers tell. Yeah. And don't get bogged down in the line by line by line in the in the PL or the balance sheet. But what is the story here? And how do you look at that? So learn to tell the story. And as you said, to make decisions. Correct. And honestly, people make it sound really complicated. If you can do basic addition, subtraction, multiplication, division in your head's quite hard. I, I have to I often just need a bit of paper for division, unless I'm dividing things by two, five, or ten, that's heaps easier. But in other than that, it's quite tricky. <laughs> Nothing else is super complicated. Percentages, just know when you have to divide by them and when you have to multiply them. It's not that user calculator, very hard to, again, divide by percentages in your head, too tricky. But if anyone is making it more than literally addition, subtraction, multiplication and division, they're playing tricky-dicky with you. Mm. Um, now, there's AI and there's predictive analytics and that's entirely different, but that's the 6% and hire someone smarter than you to do that. And also be capable of questioning it because the amount yeah. of models written by very clever data scientists that I have adored and valued have said, you know, if we do X, it'll be 70% uplift. And I'm like, yep, except they're people and we're going to change the way they operate. And so let's discount it by 80%. Because even if we get a 15% uplift, that's awesome. Mm. And so instead of 70, we'll do 80% of 70, so it's 15%. So that's great. It's still worth doing. And almost always, reality never plays out like the model says. So how do you evaluate that? Anyway, I can talk about numbers for it. It is a very useful skill to have, and I would highly recommend building the muscle. Yes, as do I. And so I've just got off doing a, a live with Mel, one of my co-hosts. And um, so next month in a career that soars, we'll be doing a masterclass on financial literacy with another one of my mates, um, Kerry Harris, who is a, an accountant, CFO. She's actually an outsourced CFO in the sports sector. So she's going to basically the basics for us for an hour, hour and a half. And then there's some, you know, dive, you know, deeper dive kind of courses that, that she runs because it's still, for me, I'm, I'm still, I wouldn't say I'm shocked because not much shocks me anymore, but I am still a little bit bewildered and perturbed that the women that I work with in all sorts of different contexts, particularly senior, mid to senior level women who are saying, just not my thing. Numbers are not my thing. It's, that's the stuff I get bogged down on. I'm going, right. So, and we know it's the missing 33%. And we know that financial acumen is a, a big part of that, you know, business strategic financial acumen. Hi folks, Michelle Redfern here. Hey, I want to talk to you about how anyone at any level can wear the mantle of leadership. Traditionally, when a queen is crowned, she dons the mantle and takes the staff of royalty. These are symbols of elevated responsibility. But hey, you're lucky. You don't have to wait for someone to give you your mantle of leadership. You can don it yourself right now. And when you do, the path to advancement and a career that soars gets a little clearer. Based on No Ceiling, No Walls, our six-week program, Your Mantle of Leadership, is perfect for emerging leaders. Or if you're in a more senior position but have never had the benefit of leadership development, our course is for you. In the six weeks, we focus on foundational leadership skills, we brainstorm leadership challenges and opportunities, and we talk about the successful moves that you need to make to take you from career start into early and middle management positions. So I look forward to seeing you in Your Mantle of Leadership, which you can find under Courses in A Career That Soars. Let's crack on, let's get in there. But as you've said, Joe, let's build that muscle because it never, ever won't be useful. No, never, ever. no. Basic 
understanding the things that matter mm. and then being able to calculate those things. I mean, I, I don't, I can't remember how to do a quick ratio. I can't even remember why I need to do that. That's not the important stuff. That's, mm -hmm. you know, is cash flow a problem? Great. Mm. How do I make a decision that if I buy this for $5 and I'm going to sell it for $10, but it's going to take me two months to sell it, mm. is the fact that I've lost the $5 while I buy it mean I'm not going to be able to pay my electricity bill for the next two months Yep. or not? Am I mm. better off selling it for $7 tomorrow? Because actually that $2 means I can pay my electricity bill. Yeah. And that's where the context is important. Because saying, oh, well, your, your, your rate of return should be X or your cash turnover rate should be 1.6. Like, I don't really know those concepts, but I do mm. understand the meaning of why would I make the decision to sell it for $7 versus $10? Because cash is queen, folks. Cash is queen. Cash now or do I need it later? Yep. If I yep. want margin, I'll wait till mm. later. I've got heaps Absolutely. of cash in the bank. I'm going to sell it for 10 bucks in two months. If 100%. I am not sure I'm going to make payroll, I'm going to flog it for whatever I can today, even $5 and one cent, maybe even $4.95. Mm. Um, mm. And so if you, if you understand why you need to know the number, then I think the calculation becomes really easy. Mm. Very, very good advice. Now I have dominated the uh, questioning here. So for our, our wonder women, our business women on the, on the call over to you, uh, opening up the mic, so to speak, Questions that you have for Joe in any context, because um, I have 97 more, but um, that's because Joe and I haven't caught up for dinner and wine and discussion for quite some time. Because of no, COVID, travel. But no, I know, I know. So, folks, over to you. What are you curious about? What would you like to ask Joe? I've got one, if that's okay. Um, I think I learn the most from my failures, and you know, that they sometimes present us with some really hard truths. Um, that potentially we already knew, but we didn't really want to face into. What has been your biggest failure um, and what did you learn from it? So I call it my worst job, but I've learned the most from it because I'm going to go back to those, those days. And I think, I think so it was, it was definitely compare the market. And, and we failed because, so in addition to the, the other things, we came in and we sort of said, yeah, 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 we'll be able to get you to here. And we thought it was here. Now, the reality was the business was here, but we still only delivered here. And so I actually felt that it was quite fair to get fired for non-delivery of performance. Now, it turns out that's not why it's fired. Um, but that felt legitimate because we didn't deliver on what we promised. And there have been a few other times I'm inherently an optimist. And so I beat myself up for a couple of years post that job, so I wouldn't recommend that. But I think that the biggest lesson with failure was don't set yourself up for it in the first place. So don't overcommit, particularly if you have imperfect information. And the reality is you always have imperfect information. You can do every spreadsheet and every model and you can interview every person. But the minute you start doing things differently, you change the rules of the game. And so things behave differently. Customers behave differently. People behave differently. And I think when you are a success-oriented person, you kind of bank on, I'll be able to sort this out. I'll be able to fix it. And so my lesson was deliver bad news quickly and good news slowly. So don't, just like I say, I try and now discount the, try and discount the data science models. I try and discount my own optimism too. And so that, that was probably the biggest tactical learning from it was be really clear about what behaviors and actions you're going to do, what you think they are going what impact you think they're going to have. And then assume that half of them don't come off. Particularly if you're negotiating a budget, people are going to negotiate you up anyway. So going in with your sunshine and roses, and look, we, we've did that, done that a bit here. We deliver a really acceptable budget and then we apologise for 12 months. I'd rather have the argument up front and then over-deliver. Mm. Um, so I think under-promise, under over-deliver. But it's really hard, right? Because yeah. if you're a high achiever, saying, oh, look, I think I can only get 7% or I think I can only get 6%. It hurts. Mm. Like, it's depressing having to say that. And mm. because I do like to move on quickly from failure, 
if I don't get, I'm like, well, anyway, I've got a new plan. And this will be the thing that delivers the 7% uplift. And so being tough on myself at the beginning has been a year. I still don't know. I still don't nail it. I still find myself, you know, the CFO will say, do you really think you can do that? And my first response is, of course I can do it. I'm amazing. I can do anything. And then I go, yeah, we have never done it before, have we? So let's pull it down by like 5%. So that's probably the tactical component. I think, I think the other one, and post the sort of basically checking out of corporate world for two and a half years, is just feeling that rotten emotion. And, and there was a there was a time a few weeks ago where I'd been running on adrenaline here. So it wasn't so much failure, but somebody sent me an email, and in hindsight, you know, it was just the usual. I have a problem and I want you to solve it for me email, but I had nothing left. And I went and sat in my car and cried for two hours rather than soldiering on. And I think that's probably my other lesson is I wasn't going to do that here, but I just disappeared. And people were very confused as to where I disappeared too. I didn't realize so many people would be looking for me on a Friday afternoon. But I think just feeling that emotion and letting it, acknowledging that it's crap, and then using that to motivate you to get back up again rather than wallowing. And it's that same advice where that's the thing that that guy didn't like, but actually for me, that's the best way to get up from failure is to acknowledge the unpleasantness and use that to motivate me to try and do better next time. You've got this great ratio of EQ and IQ. And, you know, I want to call out, you got to feel the feels. you got to feel the feelings in business as well. And you've actually got to know how to manage yourself. And the fact that you took yourself off to your car and had a sob fit for two hours, really good. But also that the flip side, that IQ, the business stuff, which is understanding yourself and your natural optimism. So I was, as you were talking about that, I was thinking about, you know, when we do a business case, you do best case, worst case, probably case, you know, give, give people that kind of three ranges. But we all know business cases, budgets, whatever, as soon as they're written, they're, they're wrong, you know? So, but how do you manage expectations? But also how do you offset your own, whether you're a cup full, cup, you know, half full, half empty kind of person, understanding yourself in the context of the way that you're engaging your stakeholders, particularly those who are looking to you to outperform is, is important as well. What else, folks? Who else has got a question? I've got a question. I would imagine with your role that it, there's lots of competing demands and you could probably work 24 hours a day, seven days a week. How do you actually manage that workload to, to try and keep a balance? The reality is I'm not right now. So, yeah, I'm just not. And But I've also been really clear that that's a decision rather than something that's just happened. So I haven't replaced myself. So I was the COO and now I'm the CEO. I don't have a COO and I need to deliver a better growth plan than the old CEO. And so I'm doing everything for the first time, which makes it, makes it longer and more difficult. And, you know, it was the first shareholder meeting and it was the first board meeting and it was the first let's try and get everyone aligned on strategy. And so the workload is huge at the moment. But I made the decision that, from getting the role until the end of the year that I was completely okay with that and that that would mean that I would sacrifice other things and I had that conversation with my partner that, you know, <laughs> reality is you're not going to get your dinners cooked and I'm not really going to do anything and are you okay with this and will you support me in it? You know, I've made the decision that as much as I would love to go riding all the time that maybe it'll be once every fortnight rather than, rather than twice a week. And so I was really conscious about that sacrifice because I think if you don't make it as a decision, it just becomes your norm. Like when you're in a senior role, you never get to a time and whether that time is 4.30 in the afternoon or 4.30 in the morning where you're like, oh, I literally have nothing left to do. And, you know, you pack your bag and you toddle off. Um, it just literally never happens. There's always a million things that you haven't got around to doing. And so being clear about the time and the choice has been important for me. It means I don't resent it. It means that I don't, now the adrenaline started to wear off, which is why I was pretty tired. But because you do run on adrenaline to begin with, which makes it easier. Now it's just hard work. 
but then being really clear about what are the things that I need to do now versus in the future? What are the things that won't have to happen in the future? But what are the things that I'm doing now that I can give to someone else in the future? Um, and so developing a structure that will fill in the things that I am either not as good at or because things that you're not as good at always take longer than the things you're good at as well. And so it can be more efficient you know, something that takes me two hours, you know, designing a process, somebody else can probably do it in an hour. So I get to free up two hours and it only takes that person an hour. Um, but also what are the things that for now, even organisationally, just I just don't get to prioritise for now. And so I've had to downscale some of my one-on-ones, which normally I would never want to do. But I've got 14 direct reports and I usually have weekly one-on-ones with everyone. <laughs> I can't spend 14 hours a week in one-on-ones right now. So I think it's that conscious decision-making. And at the very beginning, Wendy, I said that, you know, how would I describe myself? And it is a mix of all of these things. And I think that I've got better at understanding that work-life balance is fundamentally rubbish. It doesn't exist. There's, there's no such thing. There's no set of scales where you just magically have 500 grams on, on each side. Sometimes work's up here, sometimes life's up here. And the more you stop beating yourself up for what you're not doing, the more emotional and intellectual capacity, and frankly time, because it's a waste of time beating yourself up, you have to do the things that right now are important. And I think it's just that clarity and, and not the minute you start to go, I'm missing out and I can't make an alternative decision, I'm trapped, that's when it all goes sideways. Whereas, so right now, it's all about work. And one of the things I loved about my job at AIB was I had a really, really good balance. I've got no balance right now, but I'm okay with that. It's a choice I made. I wanted to be a CEO, and I knew that that would come with sacrifices, and I'm really grateful for the opportunity, and so I'm cool with it. So. We have to wrap it up and we've got some people dropping off because, of course, they're going to other meetings and things. But I agree with Joe wholeheartedly. People have heard me bang on about this before. Work-life balance is bullshit. But what I like to talk about is harmony. I consider myself as an orchestra and my life as an orchestra and I'm the conductor. There are some times when the string section is, is full bore. There are some times when... It's the percussion sometimes, and I don't know much about orchestra, so I'm sorry about if I'm not going to name all the bits. That was a great analogy. What have you. But the reality is that there is sometimes when everything is going full bore. And, but it also is about, you know, and I know, Joe, that, you know, you you talk about um, your partner, Alex. um, I talk about my, my wife, Rhonda. And we have that conversations with our life partners, with those that matter and say, this is what's happening right now. And for a period of time, it's going to be, really full on and then you go okay now I'm going to top up some of the other let the string section take over for a while so I think it's, it's again it's that choice being deliberate being intentional but communicating really well with the people that matter whether it's the people you're leading the people you're loving or, or anyone else um, around to say this is what's going on right now let's work together on making it work for all of us so it's terrific advice we do have to wrap it up but one last question Joe. when you think about Joe Thomas at the start of her career, you know, in radio uh, or, you know, doing, doing your degree, when you think about her now and knowing what you know now, what would you, what would you tell her? What would you like to say to her? I wrote this down so the good news isn't short. Have the work ethic and the compassion and the tenacity of a woman and the confidence of a mediocre middle-aged white man. What a great way to finish carry yourself with the confidence of a mediocre middle-aged man i love it good on you and great work ethic because yeah those muscles whether it's the intellectual the emotional or the actual sheer hard work um, that's what's got you to where you are now so joe thomas my friend uh, my ex-colleague i have just so thoroughly enjoyed hearing your stories and we've got some beautiful comments uh in in the chat that uh, people love your energy they really appreciate your insight so thank you for gifting us an hour or so of this very precious time for you i know that aib will be even more successful with you at the helm and well we'll continue to watch and i will continue to watch with with great love and great pride um, at your soaring career thanks joe thank you for having me 
Thank you for downloading Lead to Soar. We so appreciate your support in the form of subscribing, rating, and reviewing the Lead to Soar podcast. We especially appreciate when you share Lead to Soar with friends and colleagues. Lead to Soar is hosted and produced by Michelle Redfern and Mel Butcher. To get in touch with either, visit michelleredfern.com and melbutcher.com. Lead to Soar is a production of A Career That Soars. Learn more at leadtosoar.com. Until next time, stay focused and lead on.